happening now. Welcome to another amazing episode of the EdTech Situation Room. I am your host, Wes Fryer, joining from Oklahoma City. I'm the Director of Technology at Cassidy School and a rather busy bee when it comes to technology things. Jason, how are you doing up in Montana this evening? I'm doing quite well. My name is Jason Eifer, and I am the Curriculum Director and Assistant Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school in fabulous Montana, where our offices are located in Missoula, Montana. I'm also the NCC Tech Savvy Administrator, and um, I guess I am a busy bee with technology as well. I think that's a good way to describe both of us. So, um, all good. How you doing, Wes? Please don't hesitate to interrupt me. Um, I, if we uh, start to have, have trouble screaming, I have not done the typical to my kids off of, uh, of Netflix. Um, uh, I'll comment that my wife is on the pastor nominating committee for our church and living as we do in the flat technology you know, rich world. They've done five different interviews, which I've helped them set up on um, using Zoom. But nice. uh, we, we, we learned that with candidates, you either need to tell them to, you know, be at your your place of work where there's high speed Internet or make sure you are on the top tier uh, because we have we have had some some difficulty with uh, anyway, just once once or twice where somebody was at home on a connection they thought was was fast enough. But it really is pretty amazing. And we've been using AirPlay. So we I bought a like seven dollar lazy su- rubber lazy Susan that w- that sits in, in this little uh, you know pelican case on on our coffee table and uh, then it just airplays up to the to the TV and rotates around. It's awesome, so cool. Nice. So, what's new with you? You you said you're not traveling as much now. Your your schedule's calmed down a little bit, and you you've you were saying you've progressed significantly on the dissertation in the last two weeks. That's correct. Yep. Um, I uh, have written a perspectives for my committee um, and we're regathering the committee. It's been a while since I asked them. So I needed to kind of reconnect everyone and it feels like we're all headed in the right direction. And um, I'm excited to get started in the process. I have, uh, I started my doctorate in 2008 and I wasn't exactly sure at the time if I would finish it, not because I didn't want to, but because, you know, life intervenes and as it turns out, life has intervened over and over and over again, but I'm done with coursework and um, I have a, a, a good direction, a great committee, great advisor. So I'm looking forward to the process of researching and writing. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to jump into it. Welcome to, to Tiffany, who I see is joining us live. And for those of you who are probably uh, going to be uh, hearing this uh, after the fact, whether you are or not, um, all the links that we're going to talk about are available on our website, edtechsr.com slash links. Um, Tiffany and any others who will join us, we welcome you to please text in any questions that you'd like to um, offer or uh, even if you'd like to join. We, we, we have the ability to have two other people join us live. Um, but our format is basically to toss out some questions and really talk about the educational technology spin on the educational technology news. And so we did not do a show last week. Uh, so we've got kind of two weeks of, of news to draw on. I didn't even tell this to Jason, but I'm going to throw him a curveball, but I will answer it first. One of the things I kind of enjoy with podcasts is you kind of learn different things about your hosts as you kind of go along. So I don't know what we would call this corner, but it's going to be like the interesting fact corner. And it could just be anything random, you know, just something quick. Mine tonight is uh, my, my youngest daughter, Rachel, who's in sixth grade and never played hacky sack before. And so uh, we were up at church and uh, had the hacky sack out and it took me back to the old days. (laughs) I used to be a little bit more flexible, but hey, I have to say, I I still, you know, I could, I could still hack it. It inspired me to maybe break that out. That was, that was something we used to do, you know, in in high school and college and 
uh, even even in scouts. I, I we were doing that, and I was thinking, man, think about just sitting around and kicking this little sack of you know uh, whatever of beans around. Isn't anyway? My life is is quite busy, and I'm not not doing that very often. But yes, there you know a little tidbit about me, Jason. You have to share one obscure fact connected in no way to educational technology news. Uh, I can share one of those. Um, I was a big music kid in high school, and um, uh, debate was was my my broad broad passion. But I was close enough to um, studying music in college that I had actually committed to a college to study music and get placed in bands and stuff. And I play, although not as frequently in the last fifteen years or so, trumpet, trombone, um, tuba, percussion, uh, a little bit of French horn. Uh, touch of, of uh, baritone and a little bit of saxophone. So um, awesome. I, my wife will occasionally, I apparently have like freakish memory for lyrics. So I'll just, uh, especially there's certain serious XM channels um, that uh, uh, you know, are in my wheelhouse, but uh, I apparently know the lyrics of the most obscure songs ever. So I apparently, despite not practicing, am somewhat of a lyric virtuoso. So that's my obscure fact of the day. There you go. And we'll just have to think about whatever that corner is. Well, Jason, once you kick us off, uh, we've got a bunch of articles tonight. And as usual, there's no way we're going to get through them all. So uh, what would you like to start out with? Sure. Um, so it looks like we're starting to break things down into themes. And so um, I do want to talk about a little bit, because I think there's interesting points here, about the various things we found about artificial intelligence. And it's starting to become something that I'm extremely interested, partially because there is some plug-in to um, my, my uh, research for my doctorate. But I think that there is a growing body of interest in this because of how quickly it's evolving inside of our world. And we have a couple articles this week that are all extremely interesting uh, pieces of um, um, the uh, kind of AI question. Uh, the one that I was, I was most interested in was the fact that you know, there's starting to become a lot of services available that through artificial intelligence are able to replace uh, human services. And I think obviously that's a very uh, uh, important topic in 2016 because of the, the fear and, and, and sometimes um, irrational and sometimes not uh, a fear of technology taking over uh, what previously were human jobs. And of course, we focus a lot of that attention on um, uh, uh, you know, hands-on jobs, physical jobs, factory jobs. Whereas this particular case, I was struck by the article from CIO that said that there is a, a, a tool available that allows you to use artificial intelligence um, to uh, uh, view legal documents and see if there are concerns or problems with um, that legal document. And it's interesting to me that... Um, you know, that that would be something that's that's not just a, a, a basic proofreading job. That's a skilled proofreading job where you need to have some knowledge and and some some expertise in that be, to be able to provide that service. But, you know, there there is increasing amounts of of, of technology and, and this artificial intelligence that helps make um, judgments related to these particular pieces. Um but the the broader question that I uh, stumbled into another article the other day related to this is Bill Gates is starting to talk about, um, and of course, you know, there's a lot of uh, hand wringing about Gates Foundation funding because they have funded some, excuse me, initiatives that are, uh, you know, or di didn't work out or you know received some some criticism for folks. Uh, the um, the small schools initiatives was an example of one that that I was involved with. 
as a teacher that that was kind of ho-hum uh, based on on the faculty response and then also the research response to it. But the interesting piece about that is that Bill Gates is talking about personalized learning as it relates to artificial intelligence and how really the technology of the future that will plug into our classrooms will be less device-based, maybe even less about creativity and, and empowering students, but rather, you know, plugging into large cloud-based databases that provide interesting um, uh, uh, data analytics to help figure out the best way students can learn content or, or progress content. So I guess we got to ask this question, Wes, um, um, how is AI impacting you now? Well, this will be connected to my geek of the week because algorithms that are smart and that are agents and that are able to do things for us are part of the AI revolution that is in underway. You know, it, it's happening now. So uh, I won't go into the whole thing, but Nuzzle and Flipboard and some of these other things that, that get that use the network and, and that also are to some degree learning what you like to be able to show you more things similar to, you know, your interests. Uh, that's that's one way it's impacting me. Um, it's definitely impacting me in thinking about STEM and be, and just becoming more and more passionate about how we have to be talking about coding and promoting coding and helping more students make the shift from you know consumer to yes media creator and producer, but also you know algorithm writer and. I am almost, I'm like a, less than an hour to go in the book that I think I shared last time, The, the uh, Industries of the Future by Alec J. Ross. And, you know, he's talking about three primary things, robotics, uh, artificial intelligence, and genomics. Those three things. So, like, my son's a senior. He's going into college. Like, if he goes into one of those things, it's probably going to be a really good career path because, you know, AI is 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 going to and is opening the door for uh, not just repetitive tasks that are routine, but it's going to open the door for more cognitive uh, kinds of tasks being done. Um, one of the things they talk about, and we don't have an article about it, is in Japan, the whole uh, basically nursing care and, and elder care and how there are not enough people in Japan. And this also has to do with their um, uh, you know, immigration policy, et cetera. Uh, they are investing billions of dollars in AI. So it's it's impacting my thinking in that way it's impacting my life in the way that she's using math instruction and uh using dreambox dreambox is an adaptive math technology and she is amazed at how her students are able to learn different ways and it is it is so beyond something that she i mean she's a very very talented elementary teacher and a math specialist but you know, the, the instructional learning that those kids are having using their iPad and using Dreambox has exceeded her own capacity to be able to customize and differentiate math instruction specifically for them. And she teaches third and fourth graders who, you know, have a reading level that can vary from kindergarten, maybe up to fifth grade, you know, and math levels all over the place as well. So I think we're getting glimpses of it. And it is part of the learning revolution. You know, every student deserves, whether they have an IEP or not, a differentiated learning path. And I know you're passionate about this with, with distance education, Jason, in terms of, you know, how students uh, sometimes will go for remediation or when things don't work out with the traditional school, you know, you try something else. We have been in the, in the, in the, the, um, the business, I guess, in education, really, 
of thinking about standardization and thinking about, you know, here's sort of the sandwich that everyone is going to get served. And so I think what AI, and this is, I, I actually didn't get to read this article as far as Gates, but the whole promise of differentiation, customization, adaptive learning, um, there, there are tools that can use it now. And, and it makes me think of Into Darkness with Star Trek, right? Remember that opening scene where the young Spock is in this, you know, surrounded by screens and, and he's, I don't know if he's doing a test or he's learning, but that, that idea of the holodeck and, and virtual reality and being able to have a customized learning pathway, it doesn't mean that the teacher goes away, but it does mean there's incredible tools in our hands and that our roles can change and shift. Um, right. Do you guys have AI impacting you at all as far as what you're doing with distance learning? Or is that a pathway you see for students in, in Montana in terms of coding or, or what, what's the impact you see? Well, I, I, the, the biggest impact in, in my day-to-day job is that one of the programs that, that my, um, my organization administers is something called EdReady. And EdReady is a tool of the, it, it used to be called the National Repository of Online Courses. Now they're just known as the NROC Project, but it's a open, open source, um, uh, open resource development organization out of Monterey, California. And, um, there, they a couple of years ago they developed a really amazing developmental mathematics series. It's available openly. You can go to uh, nrockmath.org and get access to all the the assets. The assets are available online. You can you can point to them and utilize them. It's really great stuff. But the they uh, the members of 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 of, of the NROC project and Montana Education Academy is, is a member, and then Bob Curry, our executive director, is a uh, founding uh, uh, a member of that organization. Um, they developed something called EdReady, and EdReady is a personalized, customized math readiness tool. And the best way to describe it is that, and this is this has been a, a marketing challenge for us uh, initially, although it's taken off uh, like, like uh, 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 or I'm trying to think of a, a metaphor there that I apparently cannot reach, but um, the, it's, 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 been, it's been flying off the free shelf like hotcakes here in Montana, and there's a cattail for the evening. But um, that uh, you know, we've been we've been delivering. We have we we've been very um, uh, uh, gracious to receive uh, generous funding from um, um, uh, the uh, Phyllis J. And, and Dennis Washington Foundation to fund it for three years in Montana. But it's it's essentially a tool that allows you to set a goal. So the goal that was originally developed for was I want to be ready for college math, right? And that question of students that show up to colleges needing remediation mathematics is a significant challenge in, in K-12 and higher ed. And a lot of times it's not the student hasn't had the mathematics or hasn't mastered it in the past. It's they take that placement test two years after they last took a mathematics course. And um, yeah, there's a variety of reasons why students don't do well in that. But what EdReady does is it gives you a um, a, 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 an assessment, and based on that assessment, gives you customized mathematics resources that target exactly what you're weak in, and then allows you to reassess um, based on that to to, to get, eventually get a level of mastery. And it seems very simple on its on its face, but we've seen it take off like fire in Montana because. Um, you know, like that's that's a very powerful tool to put in, in a teacher's hands. In fact, we we term it as that. You have to see this this tool as a tool, right? There's no way to, um, uh, you know, to to see it as an independent way to ignore a mathematics class. Like you really need it, to, you know, help deliver in context of a mathematics program. But the research, early research on it's been very uh, promising, and we 
like to think that it's it's you know amongst the greatest things we can start using technology for is to provide um, a way to customize a curriculum, customize delivery of instruction that best meets students' needs, especially in something linear like mathematics, where if a student does get a unit or two or a year or two behind, you know, progressing them forward or not stopping. Um, or not providing a customized way for that student to get uh, uh, more direct instruction, you may be dooming that student to permanently be off their their mark in regards to that process. Um, you know, the thing that 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 always very much interests me in this question is, um, you know, are we doing enough to kind of grab students right when they kind of deviate from the pathway? And um, you know, there's a lot of research that says that once you get you know, far enough away from from the regular progression, it's really hard to catch back up again. And tools like EdReady really provide, I think, an opportunity to do that. But you mentioned Dreambox. Um, I've seen demos of other tools that are like Dreambox uh, over the last two or three years. I think it's 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 really a great tool set to give to teachers that acknowledging that there's a lot of content areas where um, you may have students in very different locations in the continuum, and you might need to utilize an extra set of digital hands in order to, to really deliver to that student. And I've always believed that one of the biggest weaknesses of differentiating instruction is that it's it's incredibly labor intensive, right? Like if you don't, if you're not able to um, deliver uh, because you have small classes and um, a relatively small or a relatively small class size compared to the teacher force, then you're going to end up not doing a great job with some end or the other. Either the smart kids are going to throw an extra book, which doesn't help them, um, or the the kids on the other end of the spectrum aren't going to get individualized attention to really make a difference in their their continued education. And I think technology can really help, you know, build some, some some capacity in classrooms to make that happen. Absolutely. Well, there were a couple links that I just like had to talk about tonight, and I and I, I had actually moved them to the top. And the first one that's in the AI category, uh, which by the way, uh, welcome to Jose and and others that are joining us. If you want to get these links, you can go to edtechsr.com/links. Um, is an article series that has two parts right now. It's by a, a guy named John Smart. He's John M. Smart. Sounds like a good name uh, on Twitter. <clears throat> this is this is an example of setting uh, setting yourself up for uh, intentional serendipity because I have a Twitter list of Yodas, of which of course Jason is is on that list, and so is John Seely Brown, who's an, who's an amazing thinker and an educator. So John Seeley Brown shared it this week, and I, I found it. It's a, it's a post on Medium, and John Smart is writing a book that he's openly publishing in 15 chapters, and he's basically releasing a chapter every two weeks on Wednesday. And this is the first one. I've, I've only read the first one. It's called Your Personal Sim, Your Attention Please, The Brave New World of Smart Agents and Their Data. And so part of this, this world that we're in now and we're moving into is this world where we're going to have agents that are, that algorithms that are going to be able to scour the web and find things that we want. And we're going to be able to, uh, you know, if not directly code, you know, we're going to, we're going to be able to tweak so that they basically do our bidding and, and do our will. We are becoming superhumans. I mean, already with the phones that we have, uh, that's, that's why I think we feel naked and, and incomplete when we walk out of the house and, oh my gosh, I forgot my phone or I don't know where that went. It's because it's becoming an, an essential part of how our brains extend and, and, you know, 
the the idea landscape and horizon that we operate in. It's no longer just face to face. There's a, a lot of virtual connections. And so I love the first uh, segment of this. I'm going to go ahead and read the second part. And I just think it some. I loved hearing Ian Jukes back in the day at conferences, right? I mean, Ian Jukes would blow your mind showing you all this, you know, implantable tech and stuff that's going to be coming down the pike. And sometimes it would freak you out and get you scared. And maybe it was to to, to rattle your cage and, and get people to think about, you know, doing some things differently. I, I don't think AI fits completely in that arena where it's just like, wow, this is cool. I think that there are ways that it should be impacting our learning right now today, that there are agents and, and apps and things that we can be using. You know, Dreambox is an example. I dropped the, the link for, uh, I put it under OER, but I dropped the link to the NROC project. I mean, we're just, we're talking about incredibly powerful things and they are extending the, the uh, computational, the cognitive abilities of our minds. They're going to allow us to do things that we could not do on our own. And it's it's eventually and, and it, even though I'm, I don't have a chip in my brain and I don't have this, you know, physical silicone technology plugged into me, we are becoming transhuman. And <laughs> it's it's pretty wild because the capacities. I, I mean, some of the stuff in in um, in that other book that I talked about that I've uh, finished reading, that's uh, the, the Pentagon's brain, the uncensored history of DARPA. I mean, we're talking about eye transplants that people are, maybe they can already do now because there's a lot of classified stuff, you know, that'll allow people to, for instance, see in the infrared, to have night vision just, you know, with your eyes, you know, to be able to actually extend your sensory perception beyond what you can do. Um, it's, it's crazy. But I, but I don't think it's just in the, again, in the realm of, wow, isn't that wild? Isn't the future just, you know, shocking? Um, I think it, it think it definitely has implications for how we learn today, the tools that we're we're accessing and the ones that we're trying to put, you know, we're trying to connect to students. Because just like you talked about students who get so far behind that if they don't have those kinds of adaptive tools and, and those alternate pathways, they don't have time to, to have seat time, you know, to catch up. They have got to find other pathways to to be able to catch up. So it's it's important for us to be able to, to put those tools in the hands of kids and then also to make the case that, look, this isn't something that only, you know, the kids that the regular school hasn't, it hasn't worked for deserve. Why don't we put these powerful tools in the hands of, of all learners potentially so that they can, you know, possibly not take, you know, X number of years or X number of months to, you know, complete the canon of, of, of uh, skills and things like that that you're yeah. saying you need well, and, you know, I would say that, that the, the notion of the, the kind of personalized learning paths and that sort of thing is going to cause us to start to, to question some of those core institutions that we've really built schools around, whether it's the, the Carnegie unit or the notion of credit or the notion of mastery or the notion of, um, you know, continuums. Like, yeah, there, uh, you know, to, to be clear, I, you know, I'm not a, um, I'm not a uh, necessarily an advocate for completely chucking everything because I think there's lots of great parts of our institutions that we have, but you know we do need to start considering where things don't fit. And the classic example of this is that um, you know the the fact that we created a a credit unit 
where, um, you know, pre-algebra and AP physics are considered to be the same, the, the, the same unit of something when the content doesn't even really fit in the same, the, the same time period, right? And time is a, a fleeting thing with some of these personalized tools, but, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different concept. It's a different, uh, a depth. It's a different, uh, a way of approaching a, a, um, a topic. And, you know, that that needs to change. And that's something we, we very much need to question um, from its foundation. I think, you know, the the notion of um, um, of of now I have a cat licking my face. Hi, Willie. How you doing? Good to see you. Um, that is um, uh, that you're challenging these pieces. I think it's all a good part of the process, but I think technology is really where we're going to allow us to, to maybe make some of those changes, whereas the the uh, personalized app can become a, a great equalizer in allowing students in, in a lot of different uh, scenarios to to all learn at, at, a, at a forward continuum. And yeah, I, I think it's, it's exciting stuff. And that I would recommend folks to take a look at that that article um, from The Verge that uh, uh, that interviewed Bill Gates and talked to him a little bit about the notion of um, uh, personalization. And in fact, I will tout to say that, that Mr. Gates did mention the, the, uh, Ed Ready project a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, that there are, there are emerging tools available with commercial and free that, you know, can start to shake up some of those barriers of the continuum of curriculum and, um, pacing and the things that we do need to, uh, you know, maybe question this foundation. So I'm going to drop a link in, then we'll, we'll, we'll shift to, to another topic. But on the, on the subject of, you know, questioning things and, and looking at changing schools, um, Will Richardson on April 9th had a really good post called Nine Elephants in the Classroom That Should Unsettle Us, uh, that focused, you know, on things along, among others, boredom, you know, and how we know that the traditional high school plan is just not uh, meeting needs in a lot of cases. And so anyway, I would just commend that. That's really not news. It's a, you know, it's a it's a post, but it was it was really a, a thought provoking one. So um, I want to shift us to uh, another topic of social media moderation. And, and this is truly an article that that blew my mind as well this last week. I'm, I'm enjoying having the EdTech Situation Room because it, you know, it sets me up to know I, I need to be, be finding these articles to share. Um, but it, but it was, uh, it's called Social Media Moderating Facebook, the, the Dark Side of Social Media. And uh, it tells this, it tells several stories, uh, among others, how when Facebook was, you know, first, um, invented or, or whatever. No, I guess it was, maybe it's talking about, no, it's YouTube. Um, a small number of folks that were working for the organization and they had to figure out how to keep YouTube from becoming uh, a garbage heap, you know, how to keep porn off, how to keep, uh, you know, violence, just, just terrible things. And, and one of the stories that they tell is, is, a, is basically a story of virtual scarring. One of the implications of this is we need to understand as parents and teachers that virtual is real, not in the same way of face to face, but when I experience something uh, that I see virtually, I can have cognitively the same physiological, chemical, emotional, you know, responses as if I had actually seen that happen in person. Case in point, um, a friend of mine who graduated a couple of years ahead of me at the Air Force Academy uh, was in Iraq for years in intelligence, and he wasn't kicking down doors and, uh, you know, having to shoot people, but he was, he was an intelligence officer, and he was having to look at many, many, you know, images and, and possibly videos, too, of the aftermath of these things, you know, and he was medically retired with PTSD, affected 
in, 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 in very real ways, just like the teams that were actually going into these places. Okay. So the story here was a, a terrible video that this, you know, young, I think, you know, t older, you know, probably early twenties, you know, a person who was, was starting out with YouTube had to see, and it just, it just scarred her forever. Um, Moderation is really an important thing. The point they make in this article is it, it, there are unwritten rules for this, and even YouTube and Google and Facebook don't necessarily reveal what their you know what their exact criteria are. Um, it has huge implications uh, for global current events. In the case of Iran and the Green Revolution that happened a few years ago, you know they allowed this video of a girl who had been shot, you know, to stay on to stay on YouTube, and that was a huge catalyst for for all kinds of of uh, political, um, well, people people just being galvanized towards towards that whole revolution, you know, because it, it was it was visible there. So, you know, moderation remains very important for us in our classrooms. We don't want things to blow up, and we sh you know have students share work or we share work, and you know somebody bull you know bullies or or puts profanity or something inappropriate. But there's another side of this, I think, that is reminding ourselves about the reality of the virtual. Um, my, my wife's kids sometimes have really stark, ver you know, movie experiences, like really young and seeing the Chucky movies and seeing, you know, this, these really, really, you know, horror movies. I don't know if there's a theory about this, but I think when there's a wide enough gap between what's normal for you and then what this experience is, I mean, that can really be jarring. Um, and so in some cases, her kids are, have, have a lot of experience seeing, a lot of a lot of mature and 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 uh, I don't know if, what what all the words for those things are, but probably things that we're not going to be allowed to be seen in school. Anyway, this this is a very thought provoking article and really got me thinking about moderation and it got me thinking about the ways in which values are projected through moderation and and also just differences in the world in terms of um, you know what is what what the norms are and you know, how our technology companies that are big and are probably just going to remain, are going to keep getting bigger, you know, that, that, that whole dynamic. Uh, there's an important normative side to the moderation that YouTube does, that, that uh, Facebook does. I think you had an article uh, maybe last time or one of our just recent sessions talking about, you know, video and Facebook and how, how much they're wanting to take that over. So any thoughts about moderation and, uh, you know, the whole, the whole sphere of social media and social networking and how that interfaces with, education schools? Well, I, I, I think that what I first heard the article, the thing that I was most struck by is the fact that I, well, I read a similar article 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, that someone at Flickr or, or Yahoo Photos or something had a similar job and it talked about exactly what this article talked about, that there's high burnout rate. Um, it, it, was a, it was an easy job for the money. You really just sat all day clicking through you know, large numbers of photographs slash videos slash whatever. And it was when you found something and you see what kind of, uh, you know, stuff ends up on, well, on Flickr and YouTube and Facebook. If that's the stuff that's not getting moderated, that definitely tells you that there's a, a lot of stuff that must be getting pushed out uh, by by the moderators that is, is pretty is pretty stark. And that's what would definitely suggest to me that, um, 
um, that it must be just a horrifying job. And, you know, part of what, uh, you know, and, and I would be willing to bet that there's not a single large social network that doesn't treat this logarithmically somewhat, that there are certain things that it can look for that's probably going to, you know, catch pieces. That's Facebook has been in trouble uh, a lot because of, of uh, breastfeeding mothers being pulled off of Facebook. And I haven't read if there's been a resolution to, to that particular issue or not, but you know, they were being, uh, uh, categorized as nudity and pulled off some cases before they were ever uh, allowed to publish. And then uh, some of those those accounts were then getting blocked when they post multiple photos because they seem to be a serial abuser of this, this, or that policy. And it's it's an important thing that people need to come to terms with, that, that you know, that in a world where everyone can publish, it is you too, right? That, um, you know, there's going to be stuff that, that, that is going to violate community norms related to that. Uh, that said, I think democratization of content, which uh, Facebook and YouTube and the web in general does, also does evolve community norms a bit. And my guess is, is that over time, there's what is considered acceptable is probably going to uh, it's probably going to change and be pushed by the boundaries of having universal access to content. You know, in a lot of ways, kids are kind of leading the way here in, in the, the fact that they've, uh, in a lot of cases, migrated to Snapchat for their daily uh, evolution of, of, of communicating with one another. You know, they know that the, you know, the Facebook is written in ink um, and that uh, the web is written in ink. And although obviously you can snap a Snapchat photo and yada, 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 that there's a you know, a, a kind of a, an unwritten social rule that generally you don't on that platform and that there you need to be able to publish and do stupid things and occasionally screw up and not have it, uh, you know, on there, which is, is very related to the question of, of the, the truly inappropriate content that ends up on these platforms. And, and really but, that's kind of good in, in a way. I mean, because yeah, I, I've, I've I said and I've heard yeah. many people say, oh, I'm so glad we didn't have Facebook when I was a teenager. I'm so glad, you know, we didn't have YouTube. So it's, uh, and my, my son actually gave me a really good lesson here a couple of weeks ago on Snapchat and I've, you know, been using it with our family some. And it's interesting because I think some adults see that and they just think, oh my gosh, that's terrible. There's a, there's permission for sexting. And while that certainly can happen on the platform uh, and it can happen with all other kinds of, of apps, it also just gives you an opportunity to not be on the, the, the ink record, you know, to, to, to write with a pencil, yeah. so to speak. And I guess I, I see the, the benefit of that. But I know that, you know, adults and, and the, the aging population always you know, fears for the youth and what, what the youth are doing and, you know, how things are going downhill. Um, and there's, you know, there's always some, some credence to that. But I, I think that, you know, conversations are essential. This stuff is changing so fast. I mean, our kids are, yep. you know, high school senior, high school sophomore, sixth grader. We've been doing digital citizenship at school with uh, Carl Hooker, who came, and and uh, I, I just wrote up <clears throat> five different little digital citizenship tips that are going to be you know emailed out hopefully to parents in the last you know five weeks of school, and some of these have to do with monitoring software, et cetera. But you know, conversations are essential. There's no one who who has the the answer on all this stuff, and and because the gate because the traditional gatekeepers are gone, it's up to individuals to be making a lot more choices. You know, yes, Netflix doesn't allow pornography and, and the iTunes store doesn't either. But, you know, there's all kinds of, of decisions to make in terms of, of games to play, apps to have, you know, shows to watch and, and what we're programming our mind. And so I think yeah. that it, uh, you know, it's an exciting world, but it is 
it's a, it, it appears to be a more chaotic world outside the bounds of adult control, you know, to a far greater extent than, than before. In fact, that's one of the quotations from the uh, Industries of the Future by Alec J. Ross. He says, this is, it's a terrible age to be a control freak in. And he's talking about government. <laughs> but, you know, I, it kind of plays out with technology as we think about classrooms and schools, too, that our role really isn't just the controller and the, you know, the, the, the funnel. It's, it's a lot more the facilitator and the coach and the counselor. Maybe at times, you know, it's the disciplinarian. But um, anyway, I don't, I don't know. Lots of yeah. really good uh, thinking and, and also just, I don't know. There, there's probably always going to be more darkness in the world than, you know, we want to see and we want to acknowledge. But there's, there's some level of that that we need to be aware of when we're, when we're parents and when we're teachers in order to try and help, you know, kids get steered in the right direction. So, all right, Jason, we got, uh, we're a little more than, than halfway, uh, halfway through. So what, where would you like to take us next? Um, well, maybe a more, uh, a more big picture practical one, but uh, this is probably a quick topic, but uh, Intel announces it's cutting 11% of its workforce due largely to these, the continuing softening market of desktop and laptop computers. Uh, this particular topic has been an extraordinary amount of interest to me personally lately because I've learned a lot more about things like hardware benchmarking and uh, uh, the like speed of computers. And I've been shocked to find out in the last two years that the lower end consumer level computers are slower than um, mid range and high end professional machines from seven years ago. Um, and I have a lot of ways I know this, as you know, I've turned into this cloud ready Chromebook creator guy. I run around with my little USB drive with cloud ready on it. It's like a little magic wand that I walk up to things and now you're a Chromebook and now you're a Chromebook oh, and now you're a Chromebook. That's awesome. Um, but, <laughs> the reason why that that's been so interesting to me is because those those computers were considered trash and dogs in a lot of ways. But when you start to benchmark the CPU sitting in those machines, they are faster than the low-end Lenovo, Dell, HP. It doesn't really matter who the manufacturer is that's being sold as new consumer product in 2016. Yeah, the new ones are a little thinner and they're a little lighter. And sometimes, sometimes they have better battery life. But... Uh, I think that what's happening right now is that unless you're buying super high-end hardware, there's just not a lot left to do to provide someone a laptop that's functional with a modern-day operating system. And you know, the fact that my primary computer now is a five-year-old HP laptop with Windows 10 and Cloud Ready and then Xbuntu uh, because I'm a huge nerd on it, um, like that, and it's like, and I, I have other access to other platforms uh, that I can utilize, but it's, it's just shocking me that this, you know, $200 machine um, that was, you know, a lot more five or six years ago is perfectly advanced to provide me a power user uh, a good experience. And I think that the, the, the two, the two parts of the story here is that obviously mobile's taking over. Uh, people don't buy their kids, uh, uh, you know, a laptop anymore. They buy a cell phone and maybe a shared laptop. You know, the cell phone has really replaced the laptop as the go-to device for pieces. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, it's, it's also because you can buy, a, especially if you invest in a decent uh, uh, piece of hardware. And I, I, I would point out Macs here. Macs are always, you know, beautifully built, high-end hardware. They're going to have a lot longer of a... Um, 
of a lifespan than PCs, you know, 10, even 10 years ago, which, you know, quickly were outdated uh, by modern pieces. And so you just need to watch, um, you know, manufacturers respond in, 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 in the process. Um, you know, obviously, uh, I wouldn't want to be in the desktop PC chip business today, um, but it, they're just not creating that exciting of stuff. I mean, it's just not, you know, there's nothing that great about the laptop sitting in, you know, consumer level places that are not, um, um, or that are, are uh, available. So I, I know that you are obviously, you know, involved in some purchasing um, um, the, um, you're involved in purchasing is your daily job, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and thinking about this as far as refresh, my dogs are barking and they're, they're going to have a fight right here. So, um, <laughs> this weekend, pets. Here, would you like? Well, yeah. There's here's here's the golden retriever fight for the night. So yeah, the, that's Scarlet and Willow. Yeah, and Willow just lays down to get in her fighting position. All right, enough digression. Yes, I am involved in purchasing for our tech department. And in fact, we're looking at right now what we're going to be refreshing at the end of this year. And we've kind of had a five-year refresh recycle for desktops and, and laptops as well. Um, some of the implications of this is, you know, it's amazing just when you throw an SSD drive into a 2012 MacBook, you're like, oh my gosh, it's like an air, you know, it just, it makes such a difference as far as performance and how fast it is. And I think part of what this challenges us to think about in, in EdTech is, you know, our refreshes and, and when do we need to get new machines and how fast is fast enough? Um, I mean, you know, we've, we've purchased two Surface Pros, one for our, our headmaster and then one for, for another uh, one of our directors. And, you know, with eight gigs of RAM, I mean, do you remember when that was just so crazy? I mean, you don't even have a server that, that had eight gigs of RAM. Um, so, you know, lots of horses that, that, that these devices have. And, you know, and in some cases they're driving multiple, you know, external HDMI monitors and, or, you know, maybe doing video editing and things like that. But uh, I am certainly looking at our older platforms and what you've talked about with the never the Neverware, right? Um, Cloud ready. We we're, we've dabbled with that yeah. a little bit. You know, we still have the holdouts. I mean, I've got uh, a situation with some of our maintenance guys where you know really they just need the web and the, and and I think right. that it would meet their needs. But the mindset is, oh, I got to have Windows. You know, oh, I got to have a full blown you know new system. And oh my gosh, maybe you do, but. Uh, we talked last week about ransomware and about malware and stuff like that. Yeah. And from an IT standpoint, being able to uh, almost have a thin client environment where you have a very light, like a like like Chrome. You know, you're you're running Chrome. The intelligence is in the cloud. I, I think this is a big part of the present and the future. And it also segues back to what we were talking about with AI, because that's the vision of AI. The vision of AI is not that you're going to have all the you know knowledge and wisdom of the world in your device. It's going to be a high speed connection to the internet where you're going to have supercomputers that, that have this AI capability, and then you're going to be tapping into it, you know, with your device. So um, we're not one-to-one. -one. Um, we're, we're not, I would say on the edge of, of that. Uh, but as I think about that and I think about advice that I would provide, you know, in our situation, you know, I tend to lean towards Chromebooks and thinking about thin client and easy to manage and, and lower lower uh, malware. And, and also, frankly, you know, 250 bucks, you know, because if, if your kid, if you're going to yeah. do that, let's say when, when you're starting middle school and fifth grade, 
you know, yeah. maybe, maybe you could buy a new MacBook today and get through to 12th grade, but probably not. But if you, right. you know, drop $250 on a Chromebook now and then, you know, three or four years ago or three or four years right. from now, I need to do something else. Um, I think it should challenge us to think about uh, refresh and also um, just thinking about what people need, because we've we've assumed in our case, everybody needs a smart board. You know, everybody needs a full blown MacBook Pro. And while I'm not saying and if anybody at our school is listening I'm not saying we're changing any of that, um, but I am saying that I think it it begs the question of of what do we need and what do we use, and also what's phys- what's fiscally, uh, you know, what are the what are the responsible ways to to use our dollars and to you know think about kind of the promise that we make as far as right. the refresh and all that kind of thing. So right. it'd be interesting. We're not refreshing laptops this year. We're just really refreshing desktops. But next year, you know, there's like which which laptop do we refresh? And then also uh do you look at a mobile device? You know, do you look at an iPad Pro right. instead of a laptop? Yep. Well and I gotta tell you, I'm working on an epic blog post right now that I know I will promote uh once it's done. Um, because, uh, I, it's, it's an important topic to me and it's also been a lot of research, but it's called the $75 Chromebook is the working title of the article. And I, I picked up a seven year old laptop on eBay for $75 that it has an HD screen on it and the highest end dual core processor and eight gigabytes of Ram and all I did was slap another, uh, it was a $15, 32 gigabyte SSD drive that was on super mega clearance on, on Newegg. So I guess it's now the $90 Chromebook. But the point is, is that it benchmarks faster than every Chromebook I've used, including the $400 i3 model that we purchased in the office to first test out Chromebooks, right? And it's got a beautiful screen. It has a great professional keyboard on it and it's a beast from a, a weight and a like lugging around standpoint but you know kids don't carry laptops with them right you could easily put that on someone's desk or have it for checkout or you know use the ridiculous Dell bag that came with it that you know you could use to, to punch someone in the face with and it's the fastest Chromebook I've used and you know and I, I'm different than a lot of folks like in that I could live probably pretty pretty entirely in Chrome world without much to do with it, but it's it's perfectly good enough. I, I, I spent the, the work day, you know, with uh, my cell phone, with earphones plugged into it to, to listen to my productive music and just worked on there all day. And I was able to screencast from there. I was able to take screenshots from there. I was able to work the help desk all day long and answer all the email and deal with my calendar and write and uh, work on a presentation. And, you know, I think that's that's just an under underappreciated fact that I can buy that user equipment with the software that's available is something like cloud ready it's just you know a pretty pretty impressive stuff and so um i you know it's funny because again i've turned into this like weird benchmarking dude so i go around benchmarking everything now but you know that that's five-year-old uh uh hp uh mini 12 and a half inch elite book that i'm carrying around it's a faster processor in it than uh, a lot of the nice uh ultra books that that uh you can buy for eight nine thousand uh, dollars, you know, without thinking much about it. So I know it's, it's a very interesting topic to me. It makes me sound like one of the like Linux nerds from the mid 2000s that were running around saying that you should install Red Hat on everything uh, so much faster than Windows. And I, I, I fear I sound like that guy, but it's true. <laughs> like you do, especially since the web now, you can productively do almost everything you need to do unless you're doing something at a high end professional level 
it just is a no-brainer to me. Get devices in kids' hands, and that's a, a strategy for doing so. Awesome. All right, well, I think we may have time for one more article, and then we'll do, do some yep. Geeks of the Week. I definitely have to mention this incredible 60 Minutes uh, show called Hacking Your Phone. Have you, have you seen this yet? I've not seen it. I've read about it, though. Blows my mind. And unfortunately, it blows my mind in a way that <clears throat> when I want to tell people about it, the message is kind of like, be scared, be very scared. There's not another lesson because what they're able to do with these hacker guys in Berlin is give a phone to a U.S. senator and it's not his regular phone. But with the these Berlin hackers only knowing his number, they are able to listen to his calls and intercept all of his text messages because there's something called SR7 or something that has to do with how global roaming works and the way that they have <laughs> access to it. It's crazy. There are military installations in the United States and possibly elsewhere that when you simply drive through them, they penetrate your phone and gain access to your phone without you doing anything. And, and they show how they've got sensors that are detecting these things. This is why they tell you if you would actually go to Las Vegas to the Black Hat Conference, you don't even turn your phone on. Yeah. You know, they show yeah. the, the thing where people bump into somebody and then they have a Bluetooth connection and then they can suck off everything off their device. We're talking not only contacts, we're talking credit cards, everything. Yep. Oh my gosh. And so <laughs> when you think of the Internet of Things and how our houses are going to have digital thermostat and digital, you know, uh, locking door and digital refrigerator, it's like your house is going to be completely hackable, you know, because yep. people are not thinking yep. about security or they're not designing with security in mind. And so yep. cybersecurity is going is right now and is going to continue to be a huge field that we need to. You know, we need to tell we need to tell the children. We need to tell the parents. Like, seriously, if if you have yeah. an aptitude and an interest in this area, uh, you are not going to run out of work. And I would like I'd love to know your thoughts about that that kind of hacking phone thing because, you know, there there are some ways to securely send messages, but it just. One thing it shows me is that you do not want to be a target, right? Because if you or yeah. I would write something that would tick somebody off and, and somebody would say, oh, let's go get that guy. And, and not even like turning anonymous on us or some big group, but just like hiring a hacker for, for hire without much effort and, and with information that's probably publicly accessible, people could really do damaging things to us. So you know, 60 Minutes is always known as being sensationalist or, or I don't know that they, a lot of their shows, they want to really, oh my gosh, can you believe this? It was one of the most amazing. I haven't shown it to my family, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to subject my whole family to it. But, but, but I haven't still figured out the, the big takeaway. Okay. Now that I know to, to be really scared, I'm not, you know, going to stop using my smartphone, but um, I don't know. There, there is an app that I have installed on my phone that they mentioned in there. Uh, shoot, and I got to figure out what it is. It's something lock. I'll get the name of it. But it actually scans your iPhone for malware, which we don't really think about. Oh, yeah, my, my phone is going to, you know, have some bad stuff on it. Lookout is the name of the app, and it's free, and then you can you can pay for it. I don't know. Your thoughts on phone hacking and, and being scared about all this? Well, I mean, it's it's uh, it, the hard part for me is is how little I'm sure people really uh, fear because they perceive that being inside your home or something physical is going to save you from that. And 
I, you know, like, and I, I knock on wood, I've never been hacked. Um, the worst I've had is, you know, the typical, uh, you know, credit cards and target sort of thing. I mean, I've turned on all sorts of security layers and at home and work two factor authentication and, and all the things that, that are, um, um, you know, I, I think good security protocol, but, you know, it, at some point, something really bad is going to have to happen before we start taking these things seriously. And, you know, I, 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 I'm annoyed because I get a new credit card every two to three months now for my provider because, um, you know, Home Depot was, was hacked, or Target was hacked, or my favorite one, a vendor, we won't tell you who was hacked. Um, and so I can't, you know, no longer give patronage to that vendor because I don't know who they are. So, uh, you know, those are all concerns to me, but, you know, that I'm protected in all those pieces. Like, those are annoyances, but they're not a bad thing because, you know, federal law and credit card contracts protect me from that. There's something that's that's pretty awful that's going to occur at some point. It's going to impact a lot of people really negatively. It's going to turn power off or it's going to, you know, turn off everyone's thermostats in the wintertime or it's going to do something shenaniganly. Uh, shenaniganly is a word I just made up, but the, that's really going to create some, some doom. And, um, you know, that's, well, you've probably seen all that research about how, you know, one of the most open, uh, one of the most open devices are all those Wi-Fi connected printers out there that a ton of them have old firmware on them. Uh, they never get updated. Um, it's, it's, you know, very concerning. And the printer is the least interesting thing to hack in someone's house when the oven is connected to the uh, 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 the network. The refrigerator is connected to the network. The um, and and I you know I don't have any particular worries about health data, but man, I wouldn't put an insulin pump in that was Wi-Fi connected. Um, that's literally that's literally life and death, right? Um, you, uh, extra insulin, it's game over. So you know, like that those things, and and it, I I always feel like that that folks you know, kind of in the know, sound like they're overly panicky about this. But, you know, with billions of IP connected devices around the earth, you have to be cautious and, you know, start building cognizance in people that, that, you know, I get all this stuff is cool and you're not going to find two bigger nerds folks than me and Wes, right? Like we think this stuff is awesome, but it comes at a risk that we have to be aware of. So, um, you know, uh, proceed with caution. Yep. Yep. And, and I, I did put a link in here to an article that I had, had uh, heard about on the uh, industries of the future, because here we are named the EdTech Situation Room. Thankfully, you know, you and I are not sitting in the White House Situation Room, because if we were, I think we would have an even more paranoid view on cyber terrorism and, you know, the potential for these kinds of things to really be disruptive. Um, I had, I had heard about, we've mentioned the Stuxnet virus, which was uh, by, by most accounts that I've read, a CIA and Israeli engineered malware virus that basically took out the uh, nuclear capability of Iran a few years ago. Well, I, that was evidently a response to something that had happened with Iran or and maybe I'm getting the order mixed up. Maybe that happened first. And then, but, but Saudi, Saudi Aramco, the, the oil um, company for Saudi Arabia, we're talking 30,000 computers hacked and disabled and almost oil production for Saudi Arabia ended by a cyber attack from Iran. And like, I had never heard of that before. And so 
I'm a, I'm a big fan of Edie Hirsch and the book Cultural Literacy. And that book says that, you know, in order to have conversations in the culture, we need to have shared knowledge about things, you know, to talk about Bosnia-Herzegovina or to talk about genocide, uh, you know, happening in Syria today. Uh, we need to know about the Holocaust, et cetera, know about past things. It's interesting how a lot of this has been hidden and classified and is not well known. And I, and I totally agree with you that unfortunately it's probably going to take something that's bigger scale. So anyway, I'm kind of thinking like my grandmother years ago with Y2K and how she was very, very paranoid about what might happen. But if you think about all the dependencies that we have on technology, on the ATM, I mean, I, I just don't carry much cash. There probably is a level of practical, just like we had tornado warnings last night in Oklahoma and it's smart to have water, to have, some food to have flashlights. I mean, hey, we live in Tornado Alley. Hello. You know, that's not being crazy paranoid. That's just being practical. Um, there is a practical level of emergency preparedness that that probably is part of this that um, that we should think about. And I'm not I'm not saying to everybody, you know, go buy your camo and, and get lots of ammunition and, you know, plan to, you know, plan to hole up. I, I don't know. I, at, at some level, though, I think there probably are some practical things that we need to think about because, <clears throat> you know, the potential for these kinds of things to be highly disruptive to to our society is only increasing. So with that foreboding word, uh, I think we probably better go to our, our geeks of the week. And for those of you that may be joining us, uh, our, our closing segment is basically sharing some kind of an, an app or website or something cool and geeky that we would recommend to others. So Jason, what do you have for us this week? I like to recommend, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a politics guy. I mean, my undergraduate work was in political science. Um, it's been, um, I will admit that in the last couple of years that I, I've stopped using politics as, as like some, some folks watch sports. Uh, but I've, I've been reengaged in this election because it's so fascinating. Um, and of course we won't ever talk politics on this podcast, but, um, but, you know, I'm sure that wherever your political views are, you're finding this election quite fascinating. So my best place to go for that uh, is the 538 blog, uh, 538.com spelled out, or just type 538 in Google, but the number you're good to go. Um, Nate Silver, it, he is the proprietor of that uh, organization. He was the one that called the 2008 election state by state Um based on, on a polling logarithm that he had created. And then he was for a while sucked into the New York Times uh, uh, behemoth and his blog was there. And I want to say he also did great stuff in 2012 related to that, although my memory is a little sticky there. But he's back in a more independent site. He's now owned by ESPN. His, uh, his kind of daytime passion is to do statistics related to sports. But they're running fascinating articles on a daily basis uh, at 538. And the best part about it is, is that they have a polling a logarithm that allows you to see and right now it's primary polls. Like you can go to the, for example, the Indiana democratic primary, and you could see both their, uh, the, an average of polls based on their historical records of, um, um, what's been the most accurate of polls. They, they, they have a logarithm that picks out the most accurate of polls, but they have what they call polls plus forecast, which is based on their logarithm and, and, and their factors that they've kind of internally calculated what the most likely scenario is. And they've been, they've been pretty close in a lot of, of elections. Uh, they didn't call, um, you know, Bernie Sanders win in, um, um, and I forgot the state that he turned. Was it Michigan? I think it might have been that, uh, that was a big shock to everyone, but, um, 
the in a lot of other ways they provide great analysis and it, because it's numbers it's not i mean it's not really politically bent in a partisan way so they also have an amazing podcast it's worth your listening once a week uh, the 538 politics podcast but i would recommend if you're a political junkie at all or if you want a little bit of analysis that goes with the polls that come with uh, the, the, the election season, 538 to place. Awesome. And only 610,000 followers. So yeah, just, just a few people following there on Twitter. Yep. All right. Well, my geeks of the week, I'm going to, uh, to, um, you know, do, do two. Um, first off is I mentioned it earlier, Nuzzle. Um, I'm going to get to do, I'm so excited at ISTE this year. I have three presentations. I've never had that many accepted. Um, getting to do, yeah, a poster and a BYOD and a lecture and my lecture. No, my BYOD is um, really about using Flipboard and Nuzzle, discovering new ideas. It's going to be an enduring challenge, right? We've got all this information. We've got all this access. How do you find information, curate it to quote my friend Jason? How do you trap it? Love that metaphor. Um, you know, how do you create virtual breadcrumbs uh, in, in, the, in the, the virtual forest so you can return back to your ideas? <clears throat> Nuzzle, N-U-Z-Z-E-L, is an app, and it's also a website that leverages your community. So as you follow people on Twitter or on Facebook, it will show uh, what most of your friends are reading and recommending. And it doesn't mean it's a guarantee, but hey, if you know more than five people are liking you know this article and you follow people that are educators and, and interested in, in technology and learning and things like that, it is a really, really nice way to crowdsource learning and instead of just going to a feed of all this stuff, you know, it is a, it's an intelligent way to filter it and put some things at the top to say, Hey, you really ought to look at this. So I end up looking at Nuzzle multiple times a week on my phone or on my iPad. Um, and then, you know, sharing those links, uh, you can go to nuzzle.com slash W Fryer. And because I've, I, I guess I've, I've opened that up, you know, you can, you can take a look at what the people that I follow, you know, have, have liked in the last 24 hours or the last four hours or on Wednesday. And so, you know, this, it's not, this isn't artificial intelligence, but it is an algorithm and it's a powerful way to filter information and, and bring it to you in sort of a custom funnel that I think is, is pretty awesome. So the, the yeah. next thing is a little faster. And, uh, I was traveling the, the last two weeks. I had a chance to go to San Antonio for a huge art festival that had 80 tour buses and 3,200 kids at. We're going to host it next year at our school. Uh, it's going to be crazy. Um, and then last week I was at the, um, uh, ISAS technology director conference. And that was in Dallas at an amazing school called Parish Episcopal School. I am sure they spent over a hundred thousand, if not multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, on their robotics lab and their um, their makerspace. I've never seen anything just as incredible. You know, I don't know if they had three three different welders and a plasma welder that could cut titanium. You know, four or five drill presses, all this stuff. Here was my number one takeaway. People talk about 3D printers. They're so exciting. Everyone get one. Actually, their advice was get a laser cutter first because laser cutters can produce things a lot faster. Kids can create a design, make something and have it in their hands. And it won't take, you know, three hours or five hours per item to be able to print. So I put into the Geek of the Week, uh, the full spectrum entry level laser cutter. The one they had there was actually $15,000, but you can get one of these for about $3,500. Um, where I have the link that says, see, it's Big Brother in Action. That's a little Vine video that I took of, uh, oh, and I should have had the box. It's, it's over here uh, that I actually made, you know, whatever. It's 
there it seems silly because it's like look mom look what i made you know i made this i i put a design i put some designs on this box and somebody else did it it's like i didn't exactly make this some somebody else really helped a lot but it's very cool you know it's it it's um in terms of of makerspace and designing and creating laser cutters uh in this case we were cutting out wood um, a lot of the stuff that you'll find when you go to hobby lobby and other kinds of stores you know have been produced with different kinds of materials on you know some kind of of a laser cutter and and so anyway the, it it just makes me uh you know thinking about the makerspace and and things that we might have at our school and for anybody who's on that kind of journey and wanting to uh, have a have a makerspace and and promote STEM. Don't just think three D printing. Think laser cutter as well. Awesome. All right. Any closing thoughts for the the good of the order? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it's getting to the time where we're we're getting folks downloading the podcast, and we would really appreciate it if you gave us a review on iTunes. Help other people find the podcast. You can always find past episodes and show notes at edtechsr.com. I'm also happy to announce that we now have a Facebook page. Uh, we don't have an official link yet because we need 25 likes first. Uh, so we'll be working on that over the coming weeks. But if you want to go search out EdTech Situation Room, you'll be able to find us on Facebook and give us a good old thumbs up. And by request on Twitter today, we will be appearing in the Stitcher app in coming days. There's an application process we need to go through to do that, but it looked pretty straightforward. We've completed that application, and soon we will join the other many excellent podcasting voices on the Stitcher app. So like us on Stitcher, like us on iTunes, like us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated um, in uh, your life, and let us know if you have questions, comments, thoughts. Uh, EdTechSR at Twitter, and I'm TechSavvyTeach on Twitter, and Wes, where they can find you on Twitter. And I am WFryer on Twitter, and we would love to you know pick up and talk about any articles that you want to, to share or anything that you would like to toss our way. So we'll probably be working on maybe bringing in some some guest voices. If you have an interest in being on the show or you have a recommendation for us, let us know. Um, our plan is to mostly be here every Wednesday night, and uh, we will hopefully hopefully see you next week. It's severe weather time, so there's there's more exciting weather you know, coming our way. So some, someday we may, uh, you know, I don't think I can actually take my wireless down into the uh, tornado shelter, but who knows? We'll, 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 we'll stay tuned. And the best way to find out what's happening is to, to follow us on Twitter. So thanks so much everybody for tuning in and we'll see you next time.